Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Perhaps the most magical and hypnotic words ever uttered in sequence are once upon a time. Don't believe me? Well, let's take a look at one of the most successful movies ever, Star Wars. While it's not once upon a time verbatim, it's a theme and variation. Do y'all remember how Star Wars began? Say it with me. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Turns out those magical words don't just relate to works of fiction. Even when it comes to the truth, our brains are oriented to think in stories. Consider this. What are your thoughts about Kentucky Fried Chicken? I'm guessing that the results are a bit varied, but very few people know the story behind the famous KFC frontman, Colonel Sanders. A big part of its story is this. Colonel Sanders attempted to sell his secret recipe 1,009 times and was rejected every time. Now think about this. Does that cause you to see the business just a little bit differently? Simply put, our brains have been wired throughout the millennia to think in stories. Our traditions, morals, and values were conveyed through stories. In this episode, I visit with a storytelling expert who has decided to use her hard-earned talents to help startups increase their likelihood of success through stories. This is a brilliant idea for any business, and that is why I am so glad to be speaking with Donna Griffith, the author of Sticking to My Story, The Alchemy of Storytelling for Startups. Donna breaks down the importance of storytelling as it relates to businesses of all kinds, and you'll hear why the founder of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, and so many other luminaries are fans of her work. So listen in as Donna and I talk about storytelling and how it can help your business. Donna Griffith, welcome to Super Psyched. Super psyched to be here. I'm sure nobody ever says that, but that's definitely one of my words. So I am. But thank you for having me. Oh, fantastic. You know, I kind of caught wind of your work and listened to your book. Phenomenal. And I love storytelling. Just the mere phrase, the induction into the hypnotic effects of once upon a time gets me every time. And I know that you resonate with that idea. And you so brilliantly crafted your abilities to the startup space and how relevant it is. I'm wondering if you could just give us the background story to storytelling as it relates to the startup space. So I didn't grow up thinking I want to be a storyteller when I grew up. Because back in the day, storytelling was more reserved for like library story hour or one of my neighbors who's in her 80s, she said, oh, there used to be this woman that would come around called some Susie the storyteller. (laughs) All the kids would gather in the garden. So it's come to mean something else, but it didn't really exist as a profession when I was starting out. And I had always been into acting and always been into people, psychology. And I wanted to do something that kind of brought those worlds together. And when I found out there was something called drama therapy, 
it was for a master's degree at NYU. I set my sights on that and kind of everything I was doing up until that point was geared towards getting in. And I did finish my final paper and ran off to New York with my first degree. And then 9-11 happened the second year Mm. I was doing it. And everything kind of got, I guess there's a lot of pivotal things, COVID being another one where really existential things where you really look at life and like, what do I really want to be doing? And I hadn't not become an actress to then be making the salary of a starving artist, but I still needed, had that act hunger of wanting to be up in front of people. And one of my professors happened to say that she had a friend that would travel the globe and give trainings and workshops to people. And I was just like, oh my gosh, sign me up. Where do I go? And actually NYU had a continuing professional program for postmaster and training and organizational development. Signed up while I was still doing the courses. I sent my resume to the first place I saw on Craigslist of all places and worked for a wonderful company called Boyer Communications Group for many, many years, traveling the globe, teaching presentation skills, business writing skills, working with C-Level on their speeches, getting to see the world while I was working, which was a total treat. And then another existential moment, 2008 came, kind of stopped the party for a while. And I was again at this moment of like, okay, what do I do? All my workshops are being canceled. I've never had a nine to five job. I've always worked for myself. I was a subcontractor for Boyer Communications. And then another pivotal moments we're hearing now, right now in this crisis, I keep hearing a new slew of startups, a new slew of startups from pink slips to pitch decks. When a financial crisis hits and people are out of work, it's a lot of times like a kick in the tuchus to go out and finally start that startup that you've had sort of in the back of your mind for a long time, but you're in a fang or a mang company and you're in this golden cage of, oh, wow, but it's so hard to leave the benefits and the food and and all the perks. So a lot of people are getting out there and doing that. And back then, there were so many startups cropping up. It was crazy. And they were really struggling to raise funding. Again, deja vu to today. And what I found out was nobody was really dealing with that niche. I kind of discovered it another serendipitous moment. I was introduced to a cardiothoracic surgeon who had created two medical devices, needed help both with his professional speeches and with fundraising speeches. He had been invited to this big angel conference happening in New York, asked me to do two five-minute pitches, which I did, asked me to actually present them, which I don't usually do, but for he was pretty high level. So it kind of became a temporary member of their team. And when it came time to see the others present, my heart just broke to smithereens because they were so off base. Like it's not even to say they were so bad. They just, they hadn't prepared for their audience. And I was like, why, why? Why wouldn't you work with someone like me? And then that was when I discovered there weren't others like me doing this at the time, talking 2008, 2009. So I said, okay, that's my new audience. I'm going to be the storyteller for startups. That is brilliant. I love that idea. And I imagine that the absence of storytelling, given how our brains are wired, really costs lots of startups non-funding. And I'm wondering if you could tell me why is storytelling so important? How does it relate to starting a venture, a business, whether it's startup or not, it's such a good business practice to know how to tell a story well. Why is storytelling so important in the realm of business? So I'll start from today and then backtrack a few thousand, tens of thousands of years. So I just was in a forum today where five Silicon Valley partners were seeing 
companies. They each had like a five minute pitch opportunity and then got very candid feedback. It's a closed forum. I get to be the fly on the wall, moderate and take voracious notes. And one thing I kept hearing very clearly was your story is more important than ever. Your storytelling is more important than ever. Your story is more important than ever. Now, what do they mean by that? Right now, we're in a place where there is money to be invested, but they're holding on to it because times are uncertain. We're just out. What's funny is we just came off the wave of crazy 2021, where valuations were soaring up to outer space which was completely out of touch with everything. And investors, in a way, they're saying also, this is going to be a real sort of curse of those that raise, because when they raise such a big amount, it's such a high valuation, it's going to come back to bite you the next round because you've got a lot to prove. So you need to craft a story to show, A, what you've been doing with that funding or what you've been doing if you haven't gotten funding. What are the true pains of your audience and what's not being solved by it? How are you different? How will you solve it? How well do you know your audience? And all of these things are a story. So going to the book for a second, this is exactly what I do. I break down the pitch into four acts. And again, theater baby, so so (laughs) four acts of a play. And now going back several tens of thousands of years, when initially writing was being done, first of all, before language, we had cave paintings and we had all these wonderful stories being told on the side of a cave. And then that became Greek myths and Aesop's fables, and then the Greek tragedies and Shakespeare and Moliere. And everywhere, there was a very specific structure to Mm -hmm. how a story was told. And our brains, as they were forming, and it's been a very long time since we've gotten a hardware upgrade in our brain. We've gotten lots of software. (laughs) Well, over 35,000 years, yeah. Exactly. So that was the last time that something changed in the way our brain was structured. Yes, new things happen all the time and that, but the way the neural pathways were built and the way people were taking in stories had sustained us as a race, humanity, I mean, for all of this time. And Yuval Noah Harari talks about it in Sapiens saying that we, that's, Storytelling is one of the unique reasons that helped us outlast the Neanderthals. And I personally think it'll help us outlast AI. It's truly what makes us human. I mean, we don't sit around the holiday tables with our family having PowerPoint (laughs) presentations. We tell stories. We tell anecdotes. We hear the same story again and again from Aunt Mildred or from our grandma or from someone in our family. And it lives in us because of the way it's told. So why would you do it differently for business? Why would you take away what makes us so human and turn it into numbers and bits and bytes and excels and oh? So you're basically saying that throughout the millennia, our brains have become wired and attuned to hear stories, maybe even in a four-act play, like you're saying. Absolutely. Exactly that way. And since we're so hardwired for that, the minute we break that mold and we break that structure... People get confused. Totally. People get overwhelmed. Now, sometimes it has a shocking effect and it can work, but you have to be very masterful if you're breaking that mold. It's just like building a building. You don't want to be the first one that has decided, oh, this foundation (laughs) should be like two centimeters on those centimeters. Let's see what happens. Not going to work. Not a great idea. The building gets collapsed and kill people. There's innovation happening in the world of construction in terms of materials, in terms of digitalization, but still building a building has a foundation, has 
a structure that's sound. And then you put in all the windows and the paint and, and all of that, but you need to plan that. So your infrastructure for your pitch, whether you're pitching to investors or to potential customers or to potential partners should be very solid. Four acts, you have them, and then you can be as creative as you want to be with your content. Love that idea. Can you tell me a story of a time that a story saved the day? Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, there is a story that I tell in my book about a founder that I worked with that is exceptional. And his name is Ron. And he has basically created, I can't, I'm not going to say the cure for, but it Mm -hmm. basically is pretty much a cure for type 2 diabetes. Wow. And he, his father was diagnosed when he was 56 and went from being this very strong, powerful, lively guy to needing a nap every afternoon. And it was tearing the family up to see him like this. And Ron went on this quest to find a solution for him because nothing was working. He was watching his diet. He was watching his, he was exercising and still his blood sugar levels were skyrocketing. And he literally went from Serbia to South Africa, to Sri Lanka, to India, to everywhere looking for these cures. And he did find a formulation that really helped his father. And that's a beautiful story and it's great, but I'll tell you another little story that actually did save the day. So they had fast forward. We worked on their first deck. They've raised a lot of money. They're doing great. They're doing amazing stuff. And then he asked me a few months ago, about the time that the book came out, to work with his VP sales and his US director of sales. And I said, of course, I'd love to. They send me their deck and it's beautiful. But I said, guys, where's the story? And they said, what do you mean? What story? I'm like, the Ron and Rafi story. Where is that? His dad and it was Rafi. And then they said, oh, you know, we're meeting companies like Whole Foods and all these very high They don't have time for stories. And I said, no, that's where you're wrong. Everyone has time for stories and you make the time for stories because they are not going to remember your supply chain and which herbs are mixed into (laughs) this. They see companies like that, but they are going to remember that this is the company that has a personal stake in truly saving people's lives and the world when it comes to diabetes. And this is really one of the biggest pandemics we truly have in the US and in the world. And it's the gateway for so many other horrible diseases. Now get this. Turns out that not only did Ron and Rafi have the you know family connection, the VP sales and the director of sales US both had fathers who had been diagnosed with diabetes wow. somewhere in the middle of life. And I'm like, do you guys understand the impact that is going to make, that story will make on executives when they go back and say, oh my God, we met this company thing and like three of their C-suite and probably more, I'm guessing, all got into this because they were concerned for their fathers and look at what it's done. Amazing. Now talk about saving the day, saving lives, saving families. And the story penetrated the armor, so to speak, that could have been erroneously constructed to prevent Ron's venture from coming forward. I'm thinking suddenly about this moment that Mr. Rogers had when he was presenting in front of Congress. Maybe you know this moment. And it was in front of a very kind of fiscally tight Republican Congress. And he was going to be talking about children and NPR, basically, or PBS and why it should be funded. And he literally brought a very, very tough man to tears. And the man said, who was in charge of the purse strings for the budget, he said, you've got my money. And I love that moment. There you go. I mean, because it's like that you had me at hello kind of moment. Mm -hmm. You have maybe 30 seconds at most to grab their attention. 
and to grab whoever's audience you're talking to, whether it's your Whole Foods operational CEO. or CEO or, Archie, or you know, brand buyers, whoever they were talking to, or whether it's an investor or whether it's a potential partner, a potential client, a potential employee. Right. And you need to make that you need to grab them from the you had me at hello moment because it's very hard to get that hello back once they've gone into their phone or gone into their thoughts. You want to grab them in the way that makes them sit up and listen. And that's one of the things I talk about also, the brag slide. So if you have significant traction, you come from a strong background or your team specifically skilled for what you're doing, you have exciting numbers of growth or of sales or of usage. You don't want to wait to tell that story because today in the group of investors, and one of the questions I asked them after they gave feedback was, would you meet them for a second meeting? And they said, yes, I'd meet them because of the numbers. Yes, I'd meet them because of the background. Yes, I'd meet them because of... So it's really a lot of times things that happen in that first minute. Wow. So what are some of your favorite tips? Maybe somebody who's listening thinks, you know, I'm a pretty good storyteller and I could up my game. And other people might think, oh my God, I'm not a storyteller. I'm wondering if you could speak to those two populations, so to speak, and help the people who are already pretty good at it up their game and the people who think they might not be good at telling stories maybe some reassurance that they actually can. First of all, we all are storytellers, mm. just so you know. I mean, in case you think you're not, we tell stories day and night. We have conversations with our partners in life, our partners in business, with mm -hmm. our kids, with the people we interact with. Conversation is a story. And there are no bored, or there's no boring stories. There's bored people because we're not speaking <sighs> to them. So the first and probably most important thing of anything I will ever say is think from your audience's perspective. Henry Ford said that the one secret to success was being able to see your own point of view while seeing someone else's point of view. It's hard to do because when we're entrenched in our world and what we're doing, it's hard to remember that the other side doesn't live it as much. So you need to get into their heads. You need to make sure you're talking to their pain. Now, what's an investor's pain? They want to make a lot of money. They need to see that you know your audience, that you're truly doing something different, that you're defensible, that you're able to really deliver, that you have a stellar team, and that you're going to make them a lot of money because this is a big market. Right. If you're speaking to a potential client, you need to make them feel that pain for a minute and show that you can solve it and you've solved it for other people like them because then there's this hope that comes out. We were talking about myths right before the show and my fourth grader was studying myths this year and she came home and she would be telling me these myths and I, things I'd learned long ago and it was so nice to hear them again, especially from her. And then she told me the story of Pandora's box. Now I remembered Pandora's box and how it opened and all the bad things came up. But the one thing I had forgotten or never actually learned was at the bottom of Pandora's box, underneath all the war and the hate and the strife and the conflict, do you remember what was there? I have no recollection. A quivering little white figure called Hope. Oh my God. Isn't that amazing? I chills just thinking about it. So with all of the war and strife and conflict and everything, the Greeks in their creation myths, they are in their morality myths that they bring out so beautifully and so brilliantly. I mean, that's where the storytelling is rooted. We also were gifted something to make it better. It's similar to Sleeping Beauty and her three fairy godmothers. They couldn't undo the spell 
that Maleficent put her, she thought she would die. They just made it less. You'll fall asleep for a hundred years. So, so it's like giving us that little extra something to be able to deal with that. And just think about the power of that. Think about COVID and everything we went through, being in lockdown and losing lives. We gained from it. It's hard to think about that, but we gained new perspective. We gained new ways of doing things. We gained time with our family. People discovered that productivity works differently. I know there's a lot of, you know, hybrid, whatever. We'll figure it out. But there are things to really be able to celebrate within that. It's amazing because I'm thinking about how in MBA land, people really get good at pitching a deck. They learn various skills. And it doesn't seem that storytelling is really deeply embedded into the curriculum. And I'm guessing that if you had your way, it would be. Oh, I, I would love it to be. I Yeah, definitely. And I just think that Stanford has storytelling. I know someone who was a professor there. Mm. And I still think that they do give them it's super important. And understanding what storytelling really is, that it's not just, you know, telling a random story, breaking the ice. It's truly giving meaning to your numbers and to how, you know, people listen and molding it towards them, seeing it from their perspective, understanding what they need to hear. It's not about us. It's about them. A hundred percent. And I love that you started with empathy, like really, really getting into the other people's shoes. Mm. You're going to get yawns and disengagement if they don't relate to your story and relatable is probably one of the big reasons why Brene Brown has become so big because she is a great storyteller. She's brilliant, of course, and her information is phenomenal, but she's Mm -hmm. also so relatable. And I'm guessing that relatability is an important component with great storytelling. If I think about the great comedians, they're relatable. And I'm wondering, how do you teach relatability? Exactly, with empathy. You need to get out of your head, your shoes, your glasses, and take a walk in someone else's shoes. Think back to a time where you didn't know. You started your company for a reason, all right? And likely you experienced the pain that they're experiencing now. So you can truly talk from a place of empathy. So get your get yourself back to that time that you experienced it, or you were working in a company that experienced it, or you had a client that experienced it, and really be able to take us to that place. And the beauty of storytelling is we are a veritable treasure trove of stories that are stored in our brain. We don't always think of all the stories because that would be overwhelming, but they're filed away in these neat little files. And when someone tells a story, there's a part in our brain called the insula that starts indexing and going through and whoop, reference, here you go. Mm. Reminds us, you know, like those vending machines where the little arm goes up. (laughs) It's like it's bringing down the little story. See? And then you're like, oh, oh, that's right. That reminds me of the time that, that I haven't thought of that story for years. And suddenly we're forging a bond. We've had a shared experience. I can identify. And that resonates. And that also aligns us. There are studies done that actually show that our brains between a storyteller and a story listener, our brainwaves start to sync up. And think what an amazing opportunity is at that moment. If you've got them on your wavelength, what can you do with that? Yep. Lots is the answer. And the other thing that you've even spoken to by describing the function of the insula neurophysiologically, you've created a story around that. You've made it into a vending machine and suddenly I will remember it. And one of the great things about stories is we will remember them and they will inform us and they will even serve as a platform upon which we can engage in all kinds of behavior, including change. Like we have a really good story to alter our current trajectory. 
Yes. There's so much to a story. So, I mean, these are so powerful. That said, what are some myths and maybe some realities around stories themselves as you see it? Like what are, imagine that some people believe, oh, storytelling is like, as you were saying at the very beginning, a woman dressing up and talking to children. And yet you're saying that in the most consequential moments of business and perhaps even in life in general, we adults need stories. I mean, case in point, look at Steve Jobs, look at a Bill Clinton, look at a Barack Obama, look at a Mahatma Gandhi, look at the people that were the most charismatic, Martin Luther King. These were storytellers captivated our minds by talking, drawing a picture of what is and what could be. So we're storytelling the past and the present, but we're also creating a story and a myth of what is to come and what's inspiring us and what we can achieve. So we already have that picture in our mind and it's much easier to imagine ourselves into something when we have that picture in our mind and we're aspiring towards it. It's almost like we've had this moment of being there, of of actually experiencing it. Then like, I want to go back there. I want to get there. Hmm. Let's do what needs to be done to get there. So, I mean, on a smaller scale, an investor pitch, you're drawing a vision. You are creating this vision of what can be and where you intend to go and how you intend to get there. And you want to take investors on that as if journey so that they can see, oh my gosh, that's a pretty amazing place. I want to go there with you. I totally buy that. And if you look at the anatomy of the brain, the most real estate seems to be in the occipital load regarding our visual cortex. And when we tell a story, it engages, I'm guessing if we were to put it under a functional MRI, that engages our vision. And vision is everything. And it'll, in this sense, this totally makes sense. I'm so glad that you've entered this space that as a consequence of various roads that may have been prevented you from going in certain directions that you have had to lean into this because I think that we're all the beneficiaries now of your work, Donna. And it's so much fun and potentially so powerful. Means a lot coming from you and to hear the validation of the brain from someone who is a brain (laughs) expert, you know. (laughs) I I am not a neurologist or a psychiatrist, and I'm a storyologist. I just see the impact firsthand. A hundred percent. Before we even conclude, I have to ask about a belly flop. Like, how could a person really tank or belly flop a story? And what could they do instead? Okay, so there's a few things. One is over-informing or over-jargonizing. I think we look smart. At the end of the day, they lose us and we end up looking anything but smart because they feel dumb. And we definitely don't want our audience to feel dumb. We don't want to speak down to them, but we also don't want to speak like, you know, we have to show professionalism. So it's like this very eye level conversational. That's what you were saying before. It's having a conversation and it's being very, you know, conversational and very just talking with them. So you want to get into their head and speak their language, but kind of clean it up of your own terminology and your own jargon. The other belly flop is not knowing your audience well enough, not knowing your target audience well enough, lying. Oh boy. No, there's the big... Oh, <laughs> that's, not a great, that's not a great idea. And lying. And we've had some pretty <laughs> big whoppers that have that's a um, surfaced in this past year or two here in Silicon Valley. And it really, really hurts my heart because I think these were all brilliant entrepreneurs that could have achieved what they were setting out to do had they not taken that fatal 
hubris, fatal wrong turn, fatal whatever. And you all know who I'm talking about. I don't even need to give them. <laughs> I think we've seen the HBO special. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's another one that'll be emerging soon, I'm sure. Another local oh, guy. But. Oh, right. Of course. Yes. yes that, that guy. Yes, that yes. guy. Oh, so, uh, but anyway, so storytelling does not mean making things up. It can mean taking a story that happened and, you know, as Bridgerton does, you know, this is based loosely on the retelling of history and, you know, and that's okay. Nobody, you know, if you're telling your own personal story and I'm sure I've changed the Ron and Rafi story and the details aren't the same, it doesn't matter though. That important facts are real. Yes. Okay. So never lie about your numbers, never use vanity metrics that end up getting you in trouble. Be careful of the logos you put up there because if they're not actual customers, and then they're like, oh, so that's your customer. Oh, no, no. These are just ideal customers. You need to be really clear <laughs> Oh, that. my gosh. Because that could end up, yeah. I'm sorry know. for laughing. I can't even imagine that. That's, oh, that's wild. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. These are aspirational. Yeah. yeah. And also, you need to show your passion. You may be a very low energy person, but if you're standing there talking about your baby, your dream, what you're going to build in this world, you'd better show some passion for it. So, you know, have to amp it up 25%. and. I do practice sessions with people and I get them leaping around like they were a home shopping network, something that's like, so you really need to bring your A game. There's no second chance for a first impression. And there's not agree. Hundreds like you waiting in the wings. You really want to be the one that shows them why you. And I think it's so important, as you said, to not use jargon, to allow the audience to feel smart. Comedian named Bert Kreischer, who is just unbelievably funny, tells great stories lets the audience feel very smart. He's brilliant. He takes off his shirt at the beginning of each act he does. He does not have a killer Hollywood physique. He has an ordinary man's physique. And he allows the audience to just, anyway, I just think it's a really important point. You made it very clear in your book, sticking to your story, allowing the audience to feel smart. One of the other things that you said, and it seems to be huge in the zeitgeist, and I want you to weigh in on this, And that is the notion of show, don't tell. I think that's huge. I'd love it if you'd unpack it in your own words. Right. We can sit here and I can describe (laughs) an amazing dish that I had or describe an experience that I had. I can tell you all about it. I can tell you about my technology. I can describe it. But you're going to be there in your brain with all the visual centers going. (laughs) What does that look like? What does it do? And then you're in your head while I'm still talking. And we're disconnecting rather than connecting. The minute I show you a picture, a video, something, a screenshot, it takes you there. And then you're like, God, I don't even think of Steve Jobs when he launched For sure. the iPad. It was the first time we had seen anything that was that big. And it's like, okay, well, we have a phone, we have a smartphone, but oh, that's like a big pad of paper. Now I get it. And he stood there holding it as he was talking because then nobody had to imagine or wonder. So show, show your product, show it off to its best. If it's very back-endy and very technical, take us on a user story, a user journey of how they would use it. What were they doing before? How are they using it now? Because then it draws the picture in our head as we're listening to the story. And yet I wonder, how can you show without telling if you don't have a product in hand? That relates even if it's in the abstract. Absolutely. Very few people have a physical product that they can Mm -hmm. show. So it's the user journey. So we're talking about developers and developers are stuck because something's not working right. And they're using all these 
workarounds and homegrown tools and integrations and hacks and rubber bands and matchbooks and whatever. And so we are taken into the world of pain and, and what's company losing? Hours of productivity, hours of manpower, loss of time to market. So we need to really up the level of the pain and also show current solutions are not quite getting it. There's, you know, they're partial. They're not what they need. Here we have the solution to that. This is what we're doing. So we have, let me show you how it works. So you go back to the world of developers. You're not going to show your, their actual code. You might, but likely you're not going to. And you show, okay, implementation is easy. In a few hours, they were up and running, no downtime. And then here's what we did. We were able to analyze the whole system, pull out the four key components, bring them up on a dashboard. See, isn't that cool there? Screenshot of the dashboards. Then we were able to do feature one, feature two, feature three, and show an actual screenshot if you can of the interface of it. And finally, after three months working with us, here's the results, astounding off the chart results. So you've taken us on a journey of a day in the life of a developer. I'm not a developer, you're not a developer, but suddenly we're kind of feeling what it is to be in their world and how much, what a relief it is using your product. You know, I remember when I was in, so delighted to hear you say this, Donna, and I'm remembering back in my corporate days, I was at a sales conference and I saw the very best presentation I've ever seen in my entire life. And there was a very good reason why it was the best. It was Seth Godin basically just showing his deck with very few words on any particular slide, mostly pictures, sometimes a word, sometimes a phrase. And he had me. I mean, he's obviously a very gifted speaker, a great storyteller. But mm -hmm. this style of showing and not telling, you see so many people showing these slides that are just jam packed with bullet after bullet after bullet and you want in there looking at it and reading the kill, damn thing bullets can kill totally can kill. and so i made it a point when i gave my two tedx talks to only follow the steth godin pr principle and my <laughs> and it's interesting my coach bronwyn sally and benny who's just a genius i remember reading my first iteration of it she's like yeah that's really intelligent and you put me to sleep were you interested in what you were saying? And I said, no, I wasn't. So, and if you're um, falling asleep from what you're presenting, how can you expect your audience to be listening? We've got a problem here, Houston. And so, yeah, I mean, and as I was coaching somebody on creating a talk, I said, make it bouncy, make it easy to understand, make it jargon free. And so you and I are definitely on the same page. I love what you're putting out there. I think that with better stories, we're going to have better outcomes, probably the better products and the better services will have their day in the sun if they can just get the right stories behind them. I love this. Is there anything I should have asked but haven't yet? Oh, wow. I mean, in, 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 <laughs> an the whole book. For me, the timing of this is very apropos for a few reasons. One, we're, you know, in the throes of a financial winter that we're not quite sure when we're going to come out of. And I want this to be the guidebook. I want this to be Lean Startups did for Agile and MVP, I want this to do for Pitch Deck. So I want to see this in the hands of every startup founder or someone who's entrepreneurial in spirit within organizations. So that's one. Another thing, the last chapter I wrote with my friend ChatGPT, I handed in the first draft of the book right before ChatGPT came out. I had written it initially with Jasper, who was also using GPT, but it wasn't the open AI version and I knew it was going to explode. So I went back and rewrote it. And my questions were, what are the future? What's the future of storytelling for startups? I don't want to spoil the book because you all, I hope will read it. But 
there's a lot of questions in the air right now about AI and is it going to take over for us and how's it going to change our lives? And our lives are about to change. Like, I don't think we can compare it to anything else, not the internet and not transistors, maybe electricity, maybe the industrial revolution, the first one, but I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. So it's very important right now for all of us to be able to hone our skills be creative and know how to leave our own mark on something. And storytelling can truly do that for you. So I'm going to say this book is really going to help you to do that. I'm very proud of it. I really am. And when I was, you know, I was narrating it, I was afraid I was going to look at it like, what is this? wrote. But I was really happy because I really felt that I had an amazing publisher and it said what I wanted it to say. And that's just the start for startups. I've got a lot to say about a lot of different realms of storytelling. Well, I'm going to finish with my classic magical question. That is, Donna, if you had the magical abilities to confer upon all humanity, one insight or skill that would dramatically improve the lives of individuals as well as possibly society at large, what would that skill or insight be? Whoa, whoa, that's a loaded one. No, it has to be something that I have that I can... Not necessarily that you have. There's something that you would wish upon. Well, I've been, I mean, since it's my, I have to say storytelling, and there's so many important skills out there. But I think that if we truly learn how to do it, it can improve our interpersonal relationships, our work relationships, the wins we have in life. Learn how to see the other person's perspective and give a message that truly changes their lives and sticks with them. And sticking to my story, stories truly stick. So make your story stick in their minds. You have the power to do it. You are a storyteller. Love that. Well, Donna, thank you so much for sharing your hard-earned wisdom with my listeners. And this has been a blast. It has. Thanks so much. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psych. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 